There are two rules to remember if you want to have a good time. Rules! No rules! Rule number one. Keep your friends close, but your enemies close. Rule number two. You're a dragon. Be a dragon. Ciao, Bella. This week on Double Dragon, we cover episode one of House of the Dragon. Steve and I have a little bit of fun at the beginning, so jump ahead about eight minutes if you want to hear us start actually talking about the episode. In addition, I interview Doctor of Medieval Literature, Natalie Goodison. Natalie tells us a little bit about the dangers of the birthing bed, a few statistics that we're going to be interested in, and a little bit of religious hocus-pocus around the institution as well. So I thought that was fascinating. Then after my conversation with Natalie, I will include a short clip of my conversation with Professor of Medieval History, Ian McGinnis. Ian answers a listener question about bodies in the medieval world. What did you do with a dead body? If you have a question for Steve or I or a professional medievalist, you can send those to book at baldmove.com. Okay, without further ado, here's your friend and mine, stand-up comic, Steve Osborne. Peter Dinklage, Peter Dinklage, Peter Dinklage, Peter Dinklage. I know, we're just using the same Peter Dinklage song, even though there's no Peter D to be found. They, yeah, they leaned into it. There were a few scenes where you kind of heard the music, right, to kind of get the old feel, but no introduction, no credit sequence to kind of get you in the mood. Yeah. Last, you know, I mean, obviously with Game of Thrones, you're going you know, the map. You're going all over mm-hmm. here. I guess it would just be like going through like the different rooms, right? Because this is basically just set in King's Land. I mean, I, they did a few scenes in Harrenhal, but yeah, you don't see anyone on the road, you know? Right, and I mean, I'm assuming we will. I guess. Why would you need a road? You got you got these dragons to fly around on. That's true. I mean, yeah, I mean, the dragon, I guess, is just like having a commuter lane everywhere. Mm-hmm. Should double these things up, man. You guys are both going the same direction. That's right. There, dragon pool. There's enough. There's enough room on the back of that dragon for a few saddles. Right. Yeah. Totally. A dragon pool. Dragon buses. You think the show would capitalize on all the different ways you could use a dragon? We really have just touched the tip of the iceberg here. I'm kind of hoping by the time we get to season like three, uh, there's just no human cast. <laughs> it's, all, it's all. It's all dragons. Just dragons. It's all dragons. Do you think that there's someone? Like some rich, bored billionaire in Westeros that's eating like dragon egg omelets. Oh, for sure. Just hoarding these these dragon eggs. People are like doing the like that's when they people have to start doing mm-hmm. the dragon pool is because uh dragons become scarce because you just have you know, you got the, your classic King's Landing one percent. <laughs> it's not gonna be the Targaryens because they you know, they, they wanna raise the dragons, but there's gotta be someone out there that just like you don't think there's at least one capitalist Targaryen who's just like, no, I mean, I deserve all the dragons. He's He's got a black market, dragon egg market, where he's just selling these to, the, you know, different gourmands around the kingdom. Totally off the books. Yeah, he's like, you know what, I'm trying to get I'm trying to get healthier. Yes, I'm just doing uh, dragon egg whites. Shh, 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 don't say it so loud, man. <laughs> Everyone's going to want one. <laughs> <laughs> They got Beyond Dragon, Impossible Dragon. (laughs) Dragon Beaters. (laughs) South of the Border style. I can't believe it's not Dragon. (laughs) You sound a little raspy. Did you just go to a concert or something? Or were you just up Mm. all night cheering now that uh, there's Mm -hmm. new Game of Thrones content? Mm -hmm. Just hooting. Just just hooting at every scene I was hooting. I lectured all day long, so I kind of lost my oh, voice. Gotcha. Uh, kind of out of the out of the habit of being in the classroom, so my voice is a little bit atrophied. But it brings a little gravel. Don't don't sound a little bit sexy. Yeah, so it kind of is going to give our listeners a, a a sense of like, man, how long has it been since we've heard mm-hmm. these guys? I mean, Anthony's aged quite a yeah, bit. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I've taken up smoking. Anthony's, Anthony's gone full nolte. <laughs> I I feel like we should talk about sort of the, the second the show. Oh yes, that <laughs> we can do that now. <laughs> okay. No, let's just talk about the after party a little bit more. I think people <laughs> want to hear more about our indulgences. 
Do you feel, let, let me start like this. You've watched this twice now, one on a big screen and one on a small screen, because I'm assuming you're, uh-huh. you're watching this in a in a hotel room right now, right? Yeah. Yeah, smaller screen. So sure. you're in a hotel in Vegas and smaller screen. And so let me ask it this way. Did it feel like Game of Thrones? Yeah. That's a great question. Um, and now we'll be honest, like during during the rewatch, I was kind of kind of nodding off a little bit. Not that I wasn't interested or anything. I was just, you know, I was, was been in a car mm-hmm. all day and, mm-hmm. and it's it's a thousand degrees in Vegas. And so so I'm uh, you know, I might have had a little a little martini or two, mm-hmm. you know, so so I was like, oh, so I wake up like, oh, no, no, I missed that fucking stuff. But uh, but yeah, so that's different. There's a dozen podcasts out there that's going to cover this show. But when you tune into Double Dragon, you're going to hear one of the hosts who actually fell asleep during the show. <laughs> that's that's the level of coverage you're going to get from Double Dragon. Yeah, I mean, the goal is to have a an episode where neither of us watch it, uh, and it's just us. <laughs> Uh, discussing what what we think probably happened. <laughs> Let us know, write in, tell us if we were right. <laughs> so, did it feel like Game of Thrones? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it it uh, it had the the song, which <laughs> makes it. I mean, not a lot of other shows do that. Um, <laughs> uh, it's it's you know you, you got you got the throne. The Iron Throne mm-hmm. seems like a pretty big deal, mm-hmm. um, but I think what you're talking about is like, does it have that? Does it grip you? Is that what you're asking? Like, do I feel like I, I'm back in that that universe mm-hmm. again? Um, but like, I, I had the same reaction the second time as I did the first time, uh, where I did feel like the first half I wasn't. I was like, oh no, my instinct when I first saw this was like the first half didn't quite move me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was interested, but something I wasn't in. Yeah, and then the second half, I was like, okay, now I'm in, and I'm, and watching it again, it was it was it validated that feeling sure. for me. So I I would say the second half, I felt like I was back. Uh, it was Game of Thrones, but the first half felt like, as my wife put it, um, you think they want to mention dragons a couple times? <laughs> <laughs> okay, it definitely felt like the darker elements of Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Okay, <clears throat> like if you think back to Game of Thrones, like everything in King's Landing was like anyone could knife you at any moment. That's kind of how it felt. Sure. And everyone's got a knife behind their back and everyone's kind of ambitious and if you're if you're naive, you're you're done. You're done. You're not you're not going to you're not going to make it through. It it's the game. Everyone's right. playing it. Then every now and again, so you'd have that, but then you'd like cut away to the to the road and you'd see two unlikely traveling companions. And they're they're mm. kind of making fun of each other. Or you'd see, hey, that knight's a woman, and she's really tall. Yeah. Isn't that kind of goofy? Or you know, that guy likes bread. And, he, and yeah, there's a there's a guy that he's just really into baking, right? Mm. Or there's a goofy pirate, and I feel like that's the kind of stuff that I missed. I feel like mm. there's an aspect of that series that I didn't find in this first episode. Not to say that I won't find it. I'm kind of looking forward to those elements as they introduce new characters. But I do feel like they really captured the darkness of the first series. And they gave me almost no levity. Right. And that, and that in, in, in many ways, isn't that kind of uh, even more intriguing because theoretically there's not really, a, there's not a, a, a game of thrones to be played i mean there is internally right i mean that's what we get is that there's this internal family strife is really what we're going to be focused on no one can take down the targaryens except for the targaryens. right right so that's so that's so that's the question it's like well will the targaryens take themselves down so that's definitely part of of where we're headed um but you would think that if you're if you're you know the cock of the walk if you're if you're living pretty large and you're you know sitting on on stables of dragons wouldn't things be a little bit more upbeat? Did you just say if you're the cock of the walk? Yeah. Is that a phrase? Is that a did I did did you just introduce me to a new phrase that I've never heard before? I I mean I've I've heard the phrase. Oh, all right. This is I, I'm not familiar with this phrase. It's someone who dominates others within a group. I see. That's the cock of the walk. That's the cock of the walk. 
It's not like the chicken that I'm cooking up with my dumplings or anything. <laughs> it's not. That's not the cock and the wok. Okay, good. Which is also it depends on how you want to uh, <laughs> how you want to define that. But either way, it's dangerous. Okay. <laughs> um, the other thing about this is I really thought that you know the original series loved to play with these really old taboos like incest or patricide or cannibalism. You know, these are these are the kinds of things. <laughs> those are old taboos, huh? We, we got no. They're <laughs> so old. They're so old that in the modern world, we kind of don't even worry about them anymore. You know, it's not uh, like yeah. it's not like oh no, that guy's gonna eat me. There's just it's not gonna. <laughs> there's not that part of our daily life, but they're so ingrained in the human experience. They exist in our psyche, like almost like an right. anthropological level, right? We know they exist, so when we hear it, we're like, what? We don't go, are you kidding me? But we just go, oh, we're, or we, we heard, it's sort of like, I mean, it's sort of like when there's a polio outbreak, right? Sure, yeah. It's really like, primal, I've not had right? to, I've not had to worry about polio. In fact, I was kind of banking on never having to worry about polio. Right. And now you're telling me I got to go pull out an almanac to figure out how to even <laughs> deal with this? Sure. So anyway, I thought that this show did the same thing for childbirth. It's like... Uh, it's this it's this it's this really dangerous human experience but they told such a compelling story with it i just thought that's what game of thrones did with all of these other primal dangers this episode did that with sort of childbirth in just a just a horrific way i mean it was just i mean i if you can watch that scene and not feel something then there's something wrong with you. That that scene was I know, no, you're right. And so watching that scene a second time was I don't know how did you did you did you shy away from it at all? Did you immerse yourself back into it? I mean it was a lot on the big screen, I'll tell you that the first time we saw it. It was quite a bit and I was in. I was all in. I was more interested in what was going on in the birthing bed than I was in the tournament. Sure. Um which is well, the ramif and the ramifications of it are are, are huge, right. right? I mean, it's 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 going to change. It changes the course of everything, even if you don't know how it's going to turn out. Because he, I mean, even if, if he gets the air, then that that sets a new path, mm -hmm. right? I mean, and if it doesn't, then that also sets you know. So it's that is it's a it's a crucial. It's like the you could argue it is the moment, right? Um, for this. Oh, well, he's uh, got all his eggs in this basket. He's like. Look, you guys, right. you guys worried about all these problems. You're worried about the kingdom coming apart at the scenes. You just wait till my son's born. It'll solve everything. And so and and he really he's bought into it. He's bought he's bought into this idea so much so that he's willing to sacrifice his wife in order to solve this problem. Right. And then I don't know if you remember, but when we were in the theater, when they show they show her corpse and then they like do a really long shot on the, the infant corpse on the pyre. Uh -huh. And I remember like everyone in the theater, like an audible gasp. Like, yeah, that was really well. It was a good way to tell that story. I, I just think it, it was perfectly framed. Yeah. I really liked that. I mean, I liked, you know, you, you get the in inclination cause like the, the, the baby gives like a couple of, couple of odd calls. Yeah, I noticed that the second time. <laughs> I was like I noticed that the first time. So the first time I did notice that and I was like, ooh, and because I because the maester did just a slight look like huh. Like, and wait, you're not and I'm to, like, oh when the camera's rolling, you're not supposed to cough. It means and then like <laughs> cut the next scene. That's right. On the pie. It, was, it was a it was a blooper and they're like, well we didn't have another take. <laughs> yeah. So that's it was it was a lot, right? I mean it's it's a big deal. So, yeah, and I think from that moment is when it really starts to take off for me because yeah. uh, it and I don't know. And it also, I feel like the editing was a little bit different um, as the show moved on. Like, and I don't know if that was a conscious thing, like maybe because there was so much of like trying to set things in motion. What do you mean by editing? Um, I mean, just it, it, it felt like the first half uh, was just a little rushed, like, you know, the there was something about it that just um i don't know if it was so much tone or pacing like i think maybe more of a pacing thing for me that uh it, it seemed a little haphazard at times the first 10 so minutes were I was really I, I felt like we're just dull yeah um, i think that, that that might be part of it but I, I was i was recently listening to an interview with martin because you know he's done a lot of tv work um you know he he did twilight zone and max headroom and you know 
shows from the 80s. And so he's written for TV a lot. And he was sort of talking about the difference between writing for the page and writing for the screen. He's like, you know, the actors have to do a lot of the work um, for the writer just with facial expressions. And then he kind of went off to the side and he's like, unless you're going to do some sort of like clumsy voiceover. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as this show started and with a voiceover, I thought (laughs) I just thought it was really funny. Yeah. So that, yeah, I think, I think maybe there's something to be said for that too. I I think that did leave me a little bit like, uh, okay. I mean, it obviously relies on it, it, on it, on the previous story, which of course is the, would be the sequel, right? This is the prequel. So that's, I think that's one of the things that maybe, maybe that's a hard thing to do with the prequel is just let it be. I think so, and I think, I mean, I think that the one thing that kind of, if I if I had one bit of criticism for this episode, I kind of feel like you didn't need to bring in the White Walkers at the end here. Like, like don't don't connect it to the other series, and and maybe right. don't connect it to the part that people were really dissatisfied <laughs> in the previous series. And someday there'll be King Bran. <laughs> so, what's a King Bran, Mama? <laughs> Would you rather have a voiceover or would you rather have like like a bit of dialogue on a character's lips that's clearly intended for the audience and not the other character in the scene? This is kind of a would, would you rather question. Right. No, I definitely think that just trust your I it feels like you don't trust the audience, right? Like we know what we're doing. Like we know what we're getting into. Um and I would rather if there's any question like, well, how long ago was this and where does this tie in? Um, I almost would like, so let's, we, we talked a little bit before in other podcasts uh, about Better Call Saul, which I now uh, started watching. And, and to me, that's the, um, that's a, that's a, that's a, a great example of, of how a prequel can work. You know where it's headed at some point and you live in that tension but the show almost doesn't care. Sure. Yeah. Like the show is like, well, we're going to, we're going to get there if we get there. And you just, you decide if you want to go along this ride, because this ride, you know, and then what's something, and then because it does butt up against breaking bad, there is a sense of, of you start to do some of the, the work, some of the math to try to figure out how this is. Oh, this is. And so that's, that's the extra enjoyment that you get, but the show doesn't need it to sure. to be great yeah and so with this you have this 172 year time gap so if there was ever a time to really just be like look just just we want to go into another world we want to go back to this universe at a different time let us trust you to do the work and 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 give us a compelling story with compelling characters um without having to to wink and nod and i don't think that these are like true winks and nods per se but they certainly weren't were nothing right right i mean some of them were a little bit more subtle than the other ones uh you know it didn't it didn't ruin anything for me but i did think like i don't know did you need it i don't think you needed it i I feel like a show that was totally confident and totally secure in itself wouldn't have to bend over backwards to kind of connect it to something i already i know that i already care about you know right and you do wonder though sometimes like how much of that is um, directors and writers versus maybe um, the studio. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's a good point. It was sort of bookended, right? Yeah, you kind of had the thing at the beginning, the voiceover at the beginning. Right. That kind of connects us to Daenerys. Right. And has to really connect it to the point where, like, let's yeah. just take all the other words out. <laughs> 172 years before the thing you liked. <laughs> Let's highlight it, underscore, yeah. Circle it. Make sure that you saw it. <laughs> All the letters come rolling at you in three D with the <laughs> and then at the very end, you had, you know, the the king passing down by word of mouth the the ancient legend of the song of ice and fire. So I don't know. I mean, it, it it's fine. I don't have to complain about that kind of stuff. But it does set a concern. This is our. This is the first foot forward, right? I mean, this is what it is. This is your first impression, and I'm like, are we going to? Are we going to run into more of this? Is this sort of just necessary to do? Maybe in the first, you know, the, the pilot to kind of get people back on board. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so for some people that might have been 
been helpful. Well, guess, and right? like, okay, we're back. If I was going to be gracious, if I was going to be generous, I would be like, these guys took on a project that where the previous series ended pretty badly. Sure. You know, public reception. Right. I mean, you, you, we, you know, you, you famously loved the, the last episode of Game of Thrones, but a lot of people did not. So these showrunners are taking this, so taking over this franchise, and they know that maybe there's a little bit of ill will. Maybe they're, you know, they're gonna make go to the extra effort to to kind of remind us of the things that we loved about the first. Right, and there's and there's a yeah, but there's a bit of a prove it factor too, right? I mean, um, like again, I'm gonna. I'll just keep talking about Better Call Saul and the Breaking Bad because I think it is because, you know, this it is rare that you get a beloved show that then comes up with a prequel. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, there's spinoffs, but a prequel is a whole different animal. And so one of the reasons why I did not go to Better Call Saul for so long was because Breaking Bad, as we've talked about, was was, a, was you know, an amazing show, if not perfect. Yeah, it was right? almost perfect. So why, the, why mess with anything so the, that's perfect? Right. Right. So the idea of reentering that universe seems like I don't want anything to like if it doesn't work, mm-hmm. then is that going to change how I view Breaking Bad and in in the the Better Call Saul case? I mean, I don't know that it could have, but I mean, it's I mean, it certainly was a possibility, right? I mean, it, it, if there was, especially if it starts overlapping, and you, is it going to create any questions? Is it going to? There's some inconsistencies, things like that could just start taking. It, it could just bring it down a notch. This one has an advantage in terms of being 172 years prior, so you're not butting up against anything. You're not going to see um you know the droids from one and the other jesse pinkman selling drugs to r2d2 <laughs> right yeah a baby jesse pinkman <laughs> baby um, jesse you... pinkman carrying around chewbacca right yeah exactly because <laughs> he got him outside of a, a grocery store and a box of free wookies <laughs> um so there could be some trepidation so if, if the other side of that is well you better hit this one out of the park you know what i mean when it comes to a pilot like i better be to your first question, I better feel like I'm in Game of Thrones. I think that even more so than Better Call Saul, it's like if this season do- isn't a home run, it's a failure. And I think that there's there is a sense of that. It's like this is living in both sort of a, a massive shadow of a previous success, but also a massive shadow of a previous failure. Right. It's wild. Isn't it's it? kind of nuts. And so it's sort of like if this isn't perfect. You, people are going to turn on you really fast. Whereas sort of Better Call and, Saul, I kind yeah. of felt like, I'll give it a few seasons. I'm kind of just kind of enjoying this guy goofing around Albuquerque. This can do that too. And in many ways, it, it, it feels like a little bit smaller scale in terms of who's manipulating each other as opposed to, you know, lands versus land. I mean, who knows? We, we may see some some more of that down the road, at least in terms of threat. But ultimately, the, the biggest threat is within the family. Um, yeah, I think that this show introduced significantly fewer characters. Um, it was almost like everyone that's important can fit in one room, whereas the previous series, it was sort of like, you got to travel all over the kingdom and right. over to Essos to figure out who these key players are. And every single one of these doesn't know anyone else, so you're going to have to sort of start their story from scratch. And so this... So that's good. Yeah. So scope creates another like sort of dichotomy of expectations, sure. sort of what we talked about too, because on one hand you go, okay, well, if there's less characters, then you should really be able to flesh these out. And, uh, you know, one of the critiques was like, there's so many characters to keep track of in game of Thrones that, you know, are any of them getting short shrift. Whereas this one, it's like, okay, well you should be able to do that. Right. So then now your expectation level goes like, okay, good. You, you maybe baked in something mm-hmm. that makes it a little bit easier to do this character to development and move the narrative along at the same time. Um, but on the flip side of that, it also adds that, okay, so you've given yourself a smaller scope with which to work. You have less excuses to, to screw up. Right. I mean, so like the, right. the, you must nail it. The, the, you must nail it factor seems pretty high. And I think it's going to be a sustainable one unless they just absolutely keeps us in trance. Okay. I want to talk Damon Targaryen. I kind of feel like, like almost instantly I'm watching a really important character in the history of television. And it's a lot to put on like one episode, but I do feel like when he was introduced, I couldn't take my eyes off him. Sure. I feel like I'm witnessing the birth of something important. Um, yeah. So I want to talk a lot about Tar- Damon Targaryen and 
I want to do it by introducing, by talking about four different scenes. I think that these four scenes introduce something, some different nuance of his character. So the first I'm calling Naked Ambition. We We walk into the throne room and he's sitting on the Iron Throne. And I was just thinking, like, how many times have we been in that throne room? Mm-hmm. How many times over the course of, you know, the last 10, 15 years, do we see a scene in that throne room? And for some reason, when they walk in, the way that they light that room and the way that they shoot that scene, it's just masterful. I feel like they're making that set seem interesting in a way that I hadn't seen it before. The guy that's with Renera is basically like, shocked and appalled that he would even be on the throne. And right. so anyway, this is why I'm calling this naked ambition. Cause he basically, you know, he, he's talking about how, you know, he's the heir and you know, he's, you know, he's going to be sitting there one day or whatever. Um, I want to ask and the throne, the, the throne still maintains that it's like, it, it, it behaves as a character. Right. I mean, I think right. that, that, uh, uh, we talked about that in, in the rewatch. Um, it's, it's remarkable how, uh, Without do without moving or anything, it feels anthropomorphized, right? Just by virtue of existence. Absolutely, and it will it'll cut a fool, you know. And it's like, oh yeah, uh, yeah. It, it works as a metaphor. It works. It works on a number of levels. I wanted to ask you about this scene because I think it's a really important introduction, and it's using subtitles. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to kind of get your take on this. Like, I think sometimes subtitles will enhance a scene, and sometimes it's it's sort of like. You you could have done this all in the common tongue. So mm-hmm. did so did using High Valyrian enhance the scene for you? I think so, and I think it does for a couple of reasons. I think it shows. Uh, well, I think it's important to introduce High Valyrian in uh, in this world. It would make sense that it would exist. Um, the it it brought to me a certain layer of seductiveness um between uh uncle and niece Mm -hmm. which i think which i think is important i think because there's something about the way that they were speaking to each other there it it suggested they have a relationship where this has happened right this is something this is this is a shorthand for intimacy right yeah, this is how they communicate with yeah. each other and they've been doing it like without having to to give any backstory or anything i've already like well these people know each other intimately and and there's an exclusivity to it as well right i mm-hmm. mean so that it's it's it, it, and that's how i think you know great intimacy works right like you're not allowed in kind of a thing right so this so there's it it was it felt chilling it felt seductive it felt um it made it more sinister in a way that without having to do much yeah, of anything. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I think it, I think it really was a great way to introduce him. And I think it's a great way to sort of set a tone of that relationship. Right. right. I thought I, I, and that's the other thing I wanted to say about this scene is that those two characters are kind of mirror images of each other in a way. Cause what we just found out about her is that she does not care about the sacred at all. Right. Mm-hmm. There's a previous scene where she's ripping the page out of a book and you, oh no, what about the SEPTA? Let, you know, F the SEPTA. You know, that that's the the, right. the whole, you know, she just doesn't care about the sacred. She's sacrilegious. And then when she walks in, seeing the ultimate sacrilege, you know, here's the, someone who's not the king sitting on the Iron Throne. Mm. She kind of, she she's a little bit amused by it. She's a little bit like, yeah, that's my well, favorite Well, and he's uncle. not hiding. Yeah. And he's not hiding how he feels about it that's either. Right. So there's a trust level there that says, I can be a little naughty. Exactly. So they're, they're kind of, you, they, they have a sacrilegious, okay like his sacrilege is mirroring her sacrilege. I, I thought that that really worked well. And the idea too, that like going forward, that are they going to be rivals? Mm-hmm. Or because they're Targaryens, are they going to be something else? Yeah, are they going to be lovers? Right? That you, right. I think that that's all in that scene. It's like there's all there's all kinds of possibility for these two, right? So, okay, that was the first scene I, that I'm sort of titling "Naked Ambition." All right, so then there's the sort of the openly defiant. Uh, this is sort of him at the tournament, mm-hmm. and. 
I think that the tournament could have easily been pretty boring. You know, they were talking about like the after the scenes. They were talking about like we wanted to bring action into the first scene. You know, that that's great. You know, we want to see action, but it's sort of boring unless there's political intrigue attached. And everything that right. Damon does, every choice he makes, is a total act of defiance to Otto Hightower. Right? He right. chooses his son. He's I'm going to unhorse your son in, in front of all these people. I'm going to embarrass you. And then what does he do after that? He asks for the favor of Hightower's daughter. Right. So every every single choice he's making is like a little jab to Hightower. Um, and so I liked I liked that that scene told me something about him and something about their relationship more than just sort of being like eye candy. And it's out in the open, too. We get the sense of that. So we had that that throne room scene where he sort of plays his hand to some degree with the, you know, with the niece. And you're like, OK, that makes sense. And then it's like, oh, but when he's out in the open, like diplomacy is not his thing (laughs) and and he call he calls his shots right out the gate and not just like in the room with you know not not like it's just with the council like no it's this is for everyone to see i mean this is he doesn't matter whether he's he's, she's she's showing hightower up almost above all yeah it doesn't matter whether he's in the brothel or in the tournament or you know in in the throne room or whatever this is the guy who's going to speak his mind without any kind of, you know, concern for the consequences. So, you know, that, that told me something. The other thing I was going to mention about that scene was that, so I'm, uh, I'm friendly with someone who's sort of an expert on medieval warfare and an expert on these ancient tournaments. And so I asked him like, Hey, so if you sort of try to trip the other guy's horse, instead of trying to unseat the guy, would that be considered illegal? And the answer that I got was it's it depends on the context, but it's absolutely dirty. You know, it's totally it, it would be a t- total dirty move. Um, and it would sort of be synonymous with Italians. <laughs> that, that was really good. Wow. It's like, it's a dirty move, and you kind of expect it of Italians. So I thought that was nice. <laughs> speaking as an Italian, I'm thinking, yeah, that sounds about right. Um, yeah, and speaking as somebody who's, you know, disgusted by Italians, I also agree. <laughs> um, and then, of course, in some contexts, it would absolutely be illegal. So I just thought that, that tells us something about him, too. Like, he's, he's willing to play dirty to win. Um, so, again... These scenes are not just for eye candy. They're absolutely telling a political story, which I, I appreciated. Yeah. Okay. That's great. Next thing I want to talk about, and this is this is a fascinating scene for me. Okay. I'm, I'm calling this uh, the insecurity scene. All right. So he's in the brothel, and I'm I'm really bored of HBO's nudity. Like, I'm just kind of over it. I'm, I'm like, this mm-hmm. isn't scandalizing anyone. This is all kind of boring. Right. But in the second, the second time I watched the scene, I realized you were just thinking about who was who was doing the sound effects. <laughs> like, what were they using? <laughs> I just got two pieces of prosciutto. They slapped them together. <laughs> These are things I think about. I guess. Uh, again, grotesque Italians doing grotesque Italian things. <laughs> yeah, I just I just walked by walked by the deli, and I, I was like, hey. <laughs> um I thought it was interesting. I didn't I don't think I caught it the first time. This guy who's like established as sort of the badass of the series, he's kind of vulnerable to ED. Mm. He's got a little elect, uh, uh, erectile dysfunction happening. Is that yeah. is that how you read that scene? I, uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, the second time around that's what it seemed like that might have been the case. I just thought that was a fast like in in a show that's sort of like you just expect the nudity, so it's kind of boring, I thought, oh, this is interesting. This brings a level of complexity to a character that I was not expecting. And it brings a level of vulnerability to this person. And then, after that, he kind of like retreats to this little bench or whatever, and he wraps himself in a in a sheet and he allows himself to be consoled by his paramour, Masaria. And so 
then the question is, is this guy insecure? Because I think that that's what that scene is trying to tell me. He's kind of insecure. Yeah, no, I think so. And I think that uh, that's, I mean, that's, this is the, the Damon Targaryen show, right? I mean, at least that's what it's. it's at least this first episode, like. I, I'm, I mean, I look, Renair is really interesting, and I, I'd love to see the sea snake, you know, do do swashbuckle and stuff. But this first episode is absolutely Damon Targaryen show, right? Yeah, I mean, it, or yeah, and I think to, nothing, nothing works without like a. I mean, the thing with Game of Thrones is that you know who's bad, who's good. That's always seems to be a little blurred, um, and so in this case, it's like. I think they've added some some complexity to Damon, but you, you, it feels like it'll be a hard it'll be hard to root for. He's the J.R. Ewing, maybe of this whole thing. Sure. All right. Here's what I want to say about this: the fact that he is insecure, I think, makes him more dangerous than anything else. Right? It's like this guy has political ambition. This guy has a weapon of mass destruction. That he were he rides around as a pet, right? But what what he's got a fancy sword. But what makes him dangerous is that he's got all that and he's insecure. And right. I think that we saw that over and over and over again with with certain characters in Game of Thrones. And I thought, oh, they could have gone a different direction with this. But by making him insecure, that kind of makes him. It brings an insta- instability to his character, right? Right. Yeah. And so then you're if what the motivations may be, maybe less cut and dry. Right. Like if it's mm-hmm. just, oh, well, you know, because we just sort pursuit of power is nothing new in, in these types of shows. Um, but the motivation for the power is where you can get creative. And that's where, like you said, when you the, I like the way you put it there, the idea of insecurity breeding a, a level of instability that makes it even harder to know. Like he's harder to trust even as a character, right? Like to trust what the character is going to do next. Is, is, yeah, he's not we purely get, logic. We get the opportunity to see, because we get to see all these right. scenes, whereas not everybody, everybody else gets these glimpses. And so we have this sort of, you know, omniscient sort of look at it, right? And uh, and instead it's, you know, <laughs> I'm not sure what I know exactly. The more I know, maybe the less comfortable I feel right. about you know what to expect because if he's insecure he's not like a total Vulcan in the sense that like he's just pure logic like he will act out of desperation like there, you could imagine a, a scenario where he sort of acts out his insecurity in a way that might do political damage to himself or others it's just I just feel like to bring a, bring that level of vulnerability and security to that character makes him even more interesting. Mm. All right, final scene that I want to talk about with Damon Targaryen. Go on. Okay, I'm calling this sort of the empathetic scene. All right, so there's this little scene at the funeral. When Rhaenyra kind of hesitates comes up to her and he's super gentle and he says they're waiting for you and it just it just is that is this very minor note that he I feel like he's totally he's got empathy for her and she's sort of again they're kind of mirrors of each other. She's experienced all of this complexity of emotion. Her mother just died. She, you know, she can kind of put words to the fact that, you know, my father was only happy for one day, which says something about her. You know, she was never able to bring him true happiness. And I get the sense that that emotional complexity is something he understands. So just that little moment of empathy says something about both of those characters sort of bookends our introduction to them to this where it's like okay so where you know their, their relationship is is again rife with history it's complex it's it, there's a there's a it appears that 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 they have um that they have a genuineness right a genuine history with each other and a genuine uh affection and relationship with each other that will only uh add to the complication of the political intrigue that is inevitable between yeah, right, their stations right so I thought that's that's a really smart thing to do. You want to introduce two new characters 
um, make them reflect each other, and it, it'll bring, you know, it'll bring some texture uh, to the scenes that they're both in. Um, is there anything more about this episode that you wanted to mention that you noticed that you thought was intriguing? Well, I mean, I, and I think this is probably fairly obvious for for many, but just the, the uh, I really like the idea of this world with um, the Targaryens with with dragons. Like, you're, that's a reason why the Targaryens matter, right? I mean, dragons are pretty important. I know dragons are mentioned a lot, as my <laughs> wife mentioned. It was like <laughs> dragon, dragon, dragon. <laughs> A little bit of a dragon over here. Uh, you know how it is. Riding dragons all day. You know? it smell like dragon. Sounds like you're, of, oh, yeah, ooh, got, you smell like dragon. I got, dra- I got dragon, dragon elbow. You know how you it is. You're now? trying to control. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you know how it is. Dragon ass. You know how it is. Um, they're, uh, so, but, but dragons are important. <laughs> you know I mean? Because like, without them, the, the Targaryens are just, uh, you know, silver haired weirdos. So I mean, it, and and they mentioned that right. They're, they I think they talk about that. They talk about that. You know, without dragons, you know, we're essentially just we're just everybody else. Um, so they're in this position of power uh, because of this relationship with this with this creature, and uh, and what I love about that though, with with that, where they feel like, well, the, nothing could possibly you know tear this asunder when you've got this kind of control. It's sort of like you know when you you've got the atom bomb, then. And then and nobody else does then you know the threat right it's, so it's like mm-hmm. that kind of cold war concept but then you um but meanwhile like well yeah but then when you're isolated in that position of power right uh there's still power to be to be taken and that's where we see the crumbling of of this particular family and and the power dynamic can be at risk if if, if there's no peace you know if it, it's one thing to try to maintain peace with with a with a the biggest weapon but then you have to make sure that all the stewards of these weapons are also yeah it's like it's like this concept that power invites challenge this is sort of back to the the joker batman problem it's sort of like look if you if you show me that you're superhuman then there's always going to be someone out there that's like i could do that better you know, right. I'd like I'd like to try my hand at that. I don't I don't think you you know. And so it's kind of it's kind of fascinating to have a Targaryen who's sort of like you know we've we never should have tinkered with dragon magic. Like it, it's it was a bad idea from the beginning. I thought that was kind of interesting. It, like our uh, podcast is named Double Dragon. I don't know if you remember in the video game Double Dragon, you would if you both played together, you would fight together, but you could hurt each other. Oh yeah, you could accidentally hurt the guy, right? You could, you could punch him, you could throw the knife at him, and then there were times where I'd be playing with somebody at Scandia, and they would just haul off and just start beating the crap out of me. Then it became like a, it became street fight. Sure. If anybody was wondering why we mm-hmm. named it the Double Dragon, it's because of that. That's yeah. Subtle. No, I'm glad that you brought that up. So yeah, that is that is absolutely why we named this Double Dragon, uh, because of that that odd feature. Mm-hmm. in the NES game Double Dragon. And, of course, that eventually by the end of this series, you and I will have to fight. Oh, yeah, it's going to be pretty brutal. Or um, we'll have to have some sort of incestuous relationship to keep with the theme. <laughs> or both. Well, that's the hope, right? That's what we're all hoping. That's, that's the one thing that's keeping people onto the show, right? <laughs> the hope of both. All right, so just to remind people of our rating system, uh, the best you can get is a Dinklage... Uh, and then sort of a, a, a garden variety episode we're calling a Danny, uh, which is actually good because garden variety Game of Thrones is really good. And then, of course, if it's underwhelming, uh, this is a Dorn. So I think, Steve, you're on the record for saying uh, a, a, that this show was properly Danny. Do you want to change your rating? Yeah, I was on record that this was properly Danny and I and I stand by it because um, I, I think. Like I said, I, the, the first half was a little a little more disjointed for me. It took me a while to get back into it again. Well, and you fell asleep. And yeah, well, sure. Um, but uh, but I, I did still like it. I think I, I think the the positives outweigh any of my quibbles. And again, I mean, this is this isn't like the first time you watched the uh, first episode of Game of Thrones because this is you know this like you said it's got a shadow it's got a it's got a burden mm-hmm. that, that it has to go mm-hmm. so and if if the thought is they better nail it well then you're going to look for every reason why they didn't 
All right, so I'm on the record for saying this is a Danny plus two. Um, I'm going to say Danny plus three on rewatch. Okay. And the reason why is that there was just all these levels of complexity to Damon Targaryen that I didn't catch the first time. Got it. Um, and of course, Dan, you know, Danny plus three. I'm, I'm in, I'm in, I'm close to Dinklage rage at that point. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. That's 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 low Dinklage. Yeah, I'm not going to say it's a Dinklage minus one, but I'm saying we're in the Dinklage. That's so. It's not out of the conversation for you. It's not out of the conversation. I, well, that, I thought sign. that this introduction to Damon Targaryen was magnificent. So Damon was yeah. the rising tide for you. I think so. I think so. Absolutely. Okay. Finally, dismemberment count. Um, we had a, a number of dismemberments. Um, we had two hands. Yeah. Uh, got dismembered. That that was unfortunate. Uh, one very notable castration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then one beheading. <laughs> Yeah, I think that was a notable castration. <laughs> All right, the other thing that we're doing is um we are uh, we are going to predict what happens next episode specifically in terms of uh bare butt cheeks. Yeah, right? bare so butt this cheeks. This is this is cheek speak. Uh we're going to do the cheek <laughs> speak over under. It can't just be sort of an extra who happens to be naked. The person has to have dialogue in the show and reveal a butt cheek that would be one a full moon is going to be two cheeks so steve character with dialogue and bare cheeks what is your over under i'm going i'm setting it at four all right so you're at a four so if this show has four or higher you will be correct right all right interesting okay i'm gonna i'm gonna take the under on that okay i feel like First episode, they sort of want to catch at eyeballs. Next episode, there'll be a little bit less brothel scenes. Okay. Right. I now, I don't think that, and you know, these 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 don't have to be sexual cheeks. No, no, it just could be you know some guy who's wants to air wants to air it out. He just wants to air it out. Uh, it could be funny cheeks. Maybe it's silly cheeks. Maybe they're in a, they're watching a little a little play. Maybe the jester comes out and oh no, look at me bum, and everybody's like, ah, all right. And, uh, so this is titled the cheek speak over under. Now the one caveat here is we would also allow cheeks that have dialogue in the scene. Right. If the butt so, talks. If the butt talks, then <laughs> that would also. Now this this last episode there was actually a, a flatulence. Mm-hmm. I think that that would count. <laughs> so you, so the person never speaks, but the butt says at least something. Yeah, that's right. All right, it counts. All right, so so on the record, you're saying uh, four or over. Yes, for cheek speak, and I'm and I'm going to take the under on this. Yeah. So a, a side cheek would just be a one, right? Yeah, I think so. Side cheek is one. You, you'd need the full moon. To I mean, basically, basically any any crack gets you two. <laughs> I'm glad we have set the ground rules here. All right. right, I don't want to write in if you think that these are uh, too complicated, and you need us to write it down for you. <laughs> so I'm with a real life doctor of medieval literature. Natalie Goodison. She's at Durham University, a place very close to my heart. She's the author of Introducing the Medieval Swan. Uh, that's University of Wales Press, but of course you can get that on Amazon.com. And Natalie, that book is pretty accessible. Yes, it is. It's written for anybody interested in um, what medieval perceptions of swans were like, but it also has a thorough glossing of footnotes. So for the undergraduate or postgraduate student who's interested in the sources, it's a mm-hmm. good place to look. I think my listeners will want to know, what are the pictures like? Of... There are lots of pictures. <laughs> if you flip the book, the swan flies in the bottom right hand corner. Oh, 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 so that's go. what. Sold. <laughs> Sold. <laughs> uh, well, my favorite picture is I have one of the queen attending the swan, I think. So I was really pleased with that. <laughs> but um, I, do have, I do have a thorough... Uh, um... Glossing of British Library, Huntington sure. Library, uh-huh. um, pictures of swans. So I it's probably maybe twenty pictures. So uh-huh. I, I love my pictures. <laughs> so I was uh, given your name by a friend named Jenna Matthews. 
I, I emailed Jana and I said, look, I need someone who's an expert on the birthing bed. And um, Jana said, well, I do like this person. And she sent me a link to, to the Durham uh, faculty webpage. And I was like, you know, I've, I've been to Durham before. Um, <laughs> I, I know that that's a good place to go. And so anyway, I'm curious to hear in, in this first episode of Game of Thrones, there is a harrowing scene depicting sort of a medieval attempt at a c-section and i thought it would be great to have someone on just to talk about some of the dangers of the birthing bed in the medieval period so what can you tell us about that well i'm very flattered to your friend jenna for um introducing me to you that's wonderful as far as the medieval birthing bed in cesarean sections academically the the coolest person to go to is Monica Green. I'm in the cover of her book, Making Women's Medicine Masculine. It shows a picture of a cesarean section mm. in the Middle Ages. Um, mm. And what it has is it has a woman on it who, the picture is a woman who is dead. Um, and you can see that she's exposed so she can see her breasts. And there are, there's a man, a kind of cleric in the background with a tonsure. And he has a book and he's directing um, kind of where to cut and how to open it. Uh. And what's really fascinating is that what they're pulling out doesn't look like a baby to me, but it looks like a, a lump of flesh. And one of the things that I've written on um, quite a bit is about how a very rare genetic abnormality that women can give birth to, it's extremely rare, is something called a hydatidiformal, which is a lump of flesh. Oh, say that word again. It's called hydatidiformal. Okay. It's also called like a uterine mole. That might be a more common phrase. So I'm kind of curious, so this would be sort of an, ad, an aberration, but I'm kind of curious, like, what would the birthing bed be like? Um, of course, they shifted as the Middle Ages went on, but you would generally, a woman would be surrounded by a woman, and she'd be surrounded by um, a midwife, and then midwife's helpers. So these could be family, these could be wet nurses, but generally a, a kind of bevy of women who were mm. familiar and intimate with what was happening. And so it wasn't their first rodeo. And I like that idea of just being surrounded by a lot of women who knew in the local, you know, the local midwife. Mm. Um, you would have probably been um, likely in your own bedchamber, especially if you were wealthy. Sure. And, and this would have been even the case for queens. Like it would have been preferred that the women attend the queen and not like some you know male scientist you know from the from the local monastery or something yeah well sometimes the men did come but it was um and that's kind of the whole point of monica green's book about making women's me medicine masculine for for the beginning it used to be a lot of women over the middle ages you, you generally had more male involvement uh -huh. um as you went on but one of the interesting things that often women would employ and um I've written on this is that they would employ a birthing girdle around their waist and the birthing girdle could be um could be made of iron it could be made of um silk but the one that i've seen i'm sorry is did made you say of, iron yeah so think of like robin hood men in tights iron that's what i'm thinking <laughs> of so um i have a source in the middle ages that said the, the birthing girdle made of iron okay okay um <laughs> okay all right <laughs> Uh, uh, sorry that I interrupted you. No, no, no. So the one I've seen is made of parchment and it is written with all these kind of ritualistic talismans that are in kind uh, of Christian heritage. So they had like crosses on it with the blood of Jesus and the nails that pierced his head. And you can tell that these things have been kissed. And you also can tell that they've been wrapped around women's bodies. And one of the things that me and my, my biologist colleague proved is that it has traces of cervical fluid on it. So it has the idea that especially wealthier women who could afford to, to rent right. these out from monasteries um, would probably have worn them around their bodies to kind of invoke any kind of aid, um, supernatural aid. Okay, yeah, so yeah, absolutely. So this is sort of bringing in a little bit of hocus pocus to the whole affair. But w was there actual a physiological aid to the girdle, or was it all just superstition? I mean, it's hard to say, right? So um, most of it was probably mental, 
right? So you, you sure. go into a highly stressful situation, all of a sudden you're wrapped with a talisman that has been blessed by the bishop and has, you know, calls upon 15 saints that you are now suddenly protected from Satan and his army kind of hurting you and your baby. And it has a psychological effect because now you're a little bit more relaxed, right? I think that's it. I think that that's, I mean, of course, how do we know? But that's my best guess is that that would probably have had quite good psychological effects on these people. Interesting. Knowing that that had been employed before successfully, knowing that you were calling upon right. divine help. Right. And I guess I'm, if you have any rough ballpark numbers of like maternity, mortality, things like that, mm-hmm. I'm, cur- I'm curious to know like what, what was the expectations going into the birthing bin? So it's such a good question. Um, and the answer to that is, of course, complex and difficult to answer in some ways, because at the heart of it is it's really difficult to say, because when you're thinking about death and mortality rates, there isn't the record keeping that we have mm. nowadays. Um, you did get it by the kind of um, kind of higher middle ages, you know, maybe even I know Germany had it at least in the 14th century. But a rough guess and um, Carol Rolfliff, she is great. But she says that it's probably about 30 to 60% um, would die in the birthing chamber. Like you had a lot to fear. So you have loads of complications that go into just pregnancy and stuff. And this is medieval and modern. It is sort of same over the time. You can can develop gestational diabetes, which is diabetes that only happens when, when you're pregnant. You can develop you know, conditions for blood clots where all of a sudden your body is forming these blood clots in your throat and, you know, you could die from Mm -hmm. basically having um, your body not clearing those. There are things like eclampsia, um, kind of the the famous case in Downton Abbey where she died of eclampsia. So that happens often. So even just before you kind of go into the birthing room, there's lots of dangers. And then in the birthing room themselves, there are so many I mean, any any parent who's taken a birthing course, I think you kind of get inundated in all the things that could possibly go wrong. Yeah. Um, so all the things that could possibly go wrong uh, are, are quite, you know, even just a breech birth is is quite huge. Um, you know, the fact that you might not dilate quickly or fast enough. Yeah, and, it, and if it was breech, I mean, were they adept at turning the baby? I'm, I'm curious if it was sort of like, oh, it's breech, this is done. <laughs> we are not going to be able to make this happen no um they, yeah they 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 do have medieval diagrams for how to turn breech babies okay um uh it was it, it is difficult um it, it would have been difficult and much much more painful i think we've experienced it now let's just say you had the most kind of ideal delivery possible you know that even if you kind of gave birth mm. kind of quickly and swiftly and fine there's still one of the things that you have, especially in England, is you have kind of um, infectious disease risk and you're just incredibly vulnerable, A, after you've given birth and B, as a young human, as an infant. Mm, mm. So with the kind of plague ravaging England around the 13th, 12th, 13th century, you get even a kind of higher risk of infant mortality rate and a higher kind of susceptibility for the mother. So with all those things combined, 30 to 60% sounds about right, if I'm kind of thinking about it. Okay. All right. So... All right, let's imagine, so you're in a situation where it's like, I've got to choose between the mother and the child. Do we have literature that talks about folks who have to decide between the mother and the child? Generally, it would have been you save the woman. The woman has a higher chance of surviving than the baby does. Okay. Um, So in those situations, you weren't likely, like Macbeth, to kind of tackle a cesarean. You might tackle a cesarean if the woman was already dead. Mm. Um, But even then, I think that that was quite abnormal. Okay. Um, I don't think it would have been very normal um, for a cesarean to happen. They did happen. Um, There are wonderful papers describing cesareans happening. But I think that they were not the normal way to go and it's mostly for the risk of infection how how deep do you cut and just if you think about the scar that's on the woman's belly just that recovering and stitching time is, it would have been very very difficult mm. um so um generally you, you save the mom i absolutely appreciate your uh, insight into this and i'm sure my listeners will appreciate it too and um again i just want to mention 
Introducing the medieval swan. Well, interestingly, the book has a picture of a mother who just gave birth to septuplets in it. So she's in the birthing bed, oh my. and you can see all seven babies on the side. Oh my! So um, <laughs> there you go. That links to you know, like your um, questions about women. Wow. Okay, uh, Natalie, thank you so much for your time. No, not at all. Thanks so much. Okay, here's an excerpt of my conversation with Dr. Ian McGinnis. All right, I'm going to ask this question. This is from Brian. Brian writes, In fantasy, we see all sorts of ways that dead bodies are disposed of. We see boats sent out and set aflame. We see bodies burned on pyres. Or like the gravedigger in Game of Thrones, we see them buried. Were bodies fed to livestock or set uh, set out for the crows? What was the common means of disposing of the dead? And did it really depend on location during the time? Yes, I think in, in medieval Europe, the norm was indeed for burial. Uh, and there were different rituals regarding preparation of the body for burial and, and indeed for the burial service itself. Um, obviously, for more important people, there was more in the way of ritual and spectacle surrounding such things. So kings, for example, had quite spectacular burial ceremonies with the body being carried sometimes over long distances so, so the people could see its procession before mm. it reached its final resting place. Mm. Kings also had quite detailed plans laid out for their funeral service, as well as for the designs of their tombs. Um, and nobles and knights, too, went into quite a lot of detail about what they wanted to look like in death and, and, and the, the design of the effigies, which were often used to, to, to sit on top of their tomb, to, to project an image of them in death, essentially portraying to the world how they wish to be seen and how they wish to be remembered. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, though, there are times when the normalities of death were, were made more difficult. So battles, for example, would have produced large numbers of dead. Um, nobles and knights' bodies were often found and rescued from the battlefield. Usually they were identified by their armor and by the, the heraldic symbols they wore on them. Uh, and they were often taken back home for, for burial. Uh, and various English knights and, and even Henry V of England were preserved and transported back across the channel for, for burial back in England. Yeah. But on other occasions, th this, this might have taken place wherever was, was nearest to where they died. So some English knights killed in Scotland were buried there. King James IV of Scotland uh, is killed in England at the Battle of Flodden, and he's buried in London eventually, although his body kicks around England for quite some time before he's before he's buried. What about just and, like the local but, farmer who he he got caught up in the battle and he, you know he beat his his plow into a weapon and he went off to fight like what would happen to his body? Yeah, I think that the mass of the infantry uh, are, are probably going to end up in, in mass graves. And we found a couple, when I say we historians and archaeologists have found a couple. Uh, so the Battle of Towton uh, in the 15th century, there's a mass grave been found uh, near there, or the Battle of Visby in, in Gotland, there's a mass grave found there as well. And, and the Visby um, army was mostly peasant warriors. So, so yes, they, they were they were essentially buried near to where they fell, hmm. and there was there was less ritual and, and less I don't know. Uh, uh, there was no fancy burial for them. Right, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> I mean, they, they, just back to the question, though, the, the, the other example of, of how people are treated in the circumstances, a nice example is, is how traitors were treated. And, of course, you, you have treasonous people who are, in, in England in particular, who are executed by, by multiple deaths. You know, they're, 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 they're drawn by horses. They're mm -hmm. to the site of the execution. They're hanged until not quite dead. They're beheaded, the, the bodies are chopped up. And so you have someone like William Wallace, uh, whose body is, is cut into pieces and, and bits of his body are sent around for public display in various castles in Scotland mm -hmm. and Northern England. His head is preserved so that it can be stuck on a pike outside the Tower of London so that people can stare at it for, for years after the event. And so, yes, traitors, by and large, I don't think received any sort of burial, or if they did, it was after a prolonged period of time. Uh, I think this is a tied in some way to belief about the resurrection. I mean, if you think about the way that just the difference in the way that pharaohs were mummified, they were buried in a way that would prepare them for the afterlife mm. and they would have provisions, you know, they'd have a boat and they'd have, you know, they'd have honey and things to things to eat and whatnot. But I think that there's, there's something about Christendom that in the belief that, you know, the body will be raised. 
which makes burial optimal. And then, of course, if someone like William Wallace is not buried and he's actually pieced apart, I think that that is some something some kind of deterrent for his entry into the other world or something. Uh, or am I thinking about that incorrectly? No, I think that that may well be part of it. I mean, the, the idea of that idea of kind of multiple deaths and things, and, and indeed even just abuse of of the corpse, as does happen increasingly as the Middle Ages goes on, or or in particular examples. Anyway, um, you know, is is that means of of multiple punishments? But but yes, I think. I think you're probably right to see that also being reflected beyond, you know, um, beyond death, and indeed in terms of 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 the afterlife. That that, that yes, if 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 you can do anything to to potentially deny access to to the afterlife for a traitor, then that that wouldn't necessarily be seen as as the wrong thing. I mean, uh, although at the same time, medieval kings would also sometimes have themselves buried in multiple locations you would have the the deliberate um you know the burying of the body in one place and then the burying of their entrails somewhere else the burying perhaps of their heart in a different location the idea being that in those multiple locations you 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 um ensure that there were even more prayers said for your soul and, and thus to <laughs> to speed its passage to the afterlife the, interesting the papacy, i didn't know the that. papacy frowned on that and really i think from the late 13th or the 14th century banned multiple burials banned the body being split like that but but king still did it anyway um so so i suppose it's it's yeah you can probably see the two different sides to that that idea the dogs really like being this high up just watching things i guess if you are a dog you're always trying to get to that highest point aren't you yeah the dogs is not right now laddie's just growling at a person parking their truck at a parking garage uh would you be up for a segment on feedback uh Right now. Yeah. Sure. So, Steve, we got some iTunes feedback. Uh, people have rated and reviewed us on iTunes, and um, we we appreciate this. This helps us. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Yeah, it's good. Justin, uh, he's taken us up, Steve, on our recommendation that they could just write a review for any show on our podcast review. Oh, okay. Wonderful. Um. Joe Rogan's podcast is just dumb dorm room <laughs> philosophy soaked in Red Bull and pretty and petty masculinity. Um, I wouldn't know. I don't listen to Rogan, but uh, but I'm glad that you wrote this here, Justin, uh, because I'm sure that people will be interested to know what our fans think of Joe Rogan's show. Right. See so yes, if there's any crossover. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.